0: Good morning, welcome. Thank you guys for, for being here. That was an awesome time of worship, being able to declare these wonderful truths that we believe and to be able to worship the Lord while singing those out. So I, I appreciate your singing. It, it uh, ministers to me and I hope it, it ministered to you. If I haven't met you, my name's Jackson. I am the student pastor here. Filling in for Pastor David uh, while he he gets some rest before uh, before Easter, but super thankful that you are here today. We're entering into a exciting season of just our calendar with Easter coming up, which is just a a, a wonderful holiday. And I'm afraid that we uh, maybe aren't doing what we should to prepare ourselves for Easter. I would imagine if you're like the average churchgoer in America. And if you're like me, oftentimes you don't do a lot of uh, work or you don't do a lot of things to prepare your heart to come to church. And what I mean by that is Saturday is a time spent maybe at the ball field or hanging out with friends or family or maybe you work on Saturdays. Uh, Saturday nights, a lot of sports and Netflix and uh, time on your phone. You wake up in the morning, you're rushing to get the kids ready, get yourself ready to get through the Dunkin Donuts line or wherever you go and you walk into church, wiping the sweat off of your face, you sit down, you sing, you hear the preaching, you walk out, the worship's passed you by, the preaching has passed you by, and and you leave church. If you're like me, sometimes you leave church and you say, wow, my heart never really got stirred for love for Jesus. I was never stirred to live for Jesus, to to go out this week and share the gospel. It just kind of went through the motions. And I think Easter is a time where we need to be very, very intentional about preparing our hearts for what Christ has done. Because what we celebrate in Easter is what we should celebrate all throughout our life as a Christian. It is the, the resurrection of Jesus, the death and resurrection of Jesus that has brought us to life. And so this morning, I hope to help us prepare our hearts for this Easter season, to look at the crucifixion of Jesus, to look at what he did on the cross for us, so that we can go out this week boldly sharing the gospel and humbly seeking the Lord, repenting of sin. And so we can come in next Sunday on Easter and be excited to celebrate the resurrection. Because if we're not careful, we might step in here, and if an unbeliever was to come into the room, they would look around and say, man, these people don't seem too happy to be here. We have to prepare our hearts for worship. And we do that by worshiping throughout the week. But I hope that we can stir our hearts this morning to worship Christ so we're going to be looking at really the whole chapter of Mark 15 so if you would uh, open your Bible and I just really ask of you to have an open heart and an open Bible today as we work through a, uh, a good portion of scripture sometimes when I take a big passage with my students I tell them to to buckle up put on a pretend seatbelt, and uh, and let's get to work let's look at the scripture so I'm gonna pray for us and then we are gonna dive in this morning dear Heavenly Father thank you so much for your son and his sacrifice on the cross Thank you that your love was shown to us through the crucifixion of Jesus, that the Son of God stepped down from heaven to die for us. Lord, we praise you for that. We thank you for that. I pray that in these next few moments, your Holy Spirit would use your word to speak to our hearts, that you would speak to my heart and the hearts of everybody in this room and everybody watching online, that we would walk away from this Sunday not just unaffected, Lord, but on fire for you. Considering our sin, considering our weakness and our need for you. God, if there's anybody in here who doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, who has never repented of their sins and and believed in Jesus, Lord, would that happen today? We pray all this in your name. Amen. So if you look at the the first few verses in there, the first thing I want to show you is the the divine plan. I'm just going to give you some help as we walk through this passage. So the first thing we're going to look at is the divine plan, and we'll read the first couple of verses here, and it says, and as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a meeting with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he, Jesus, answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things, and Pilate again asked, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. we know all throughout Jesus' earthly ministry he upset the the religious leaders, he upset the Pharisees because his teachings were so different than theirs. He taught with a different level of power, a different level of expertise than they did. He made them jealous, he challenged their wrong teachings. Jesus uh, stirred the pot in some ways towards the end of his ministry by teaching truth in a way that upset the religious leaders and so they are plotting early in the morning to bring Jesus before Pilate so that he can be prosecuted so that they can finally get this man killed. They're sick of Jesus, sick of his teachings, and one of the teachings they would have been most upset about is that Jesus claimed to be God. He walked around claiming to be the Messiah, claiming to be the one who was going to come and save the world from their sins. And the religious leaders would have thought that was blasphemous. They would have hated that, and that is one of the main reasons why they killed Jesus, because his claim to be God, his claim to challenge their power. And so as they bring him before Pilate, it's funny, you notice, what does Pilate ask him? He doesn't say, hey, are you the son of God? Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate didn't necessarily care if Jesus claimed to be God or not. Rome had many, many gods, hundreds of gods. And to him, what would it matter if Jesus was just one more God thrown into the mix? But Pilate's more concerned if Jesus is the king of the Jews. Because if Jesus is king of the Jews, then that means Jesus might challenge Pilate's power. Jesus might be a political opponent to Pilate, so that's why he asks him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus kind of affirms his answer by saying, you've said so. He says, yes, it's true, but in a way, Jesus is answering by saying, I am the king of the Jews. I am the king of the world, but I'm not the king that you're thinking of. Because we know that Jesus wasn't coming to build a, a political kingdom. He wasn't coming to uh, overthrow the Roman Empire. Jesus was building a different kind of kingdom. And I think that's an important truth for us to remember today. Jesus is not building a political kingdom here. He's not campaigning. He's not trying to win America or anything like that. He is building a spiritual kingdom that does not belong to any country, to any man, any woman on this earth. He's building a spiritual kingdom. And so he tells that to Pilate, and then we see they go on in verse 6 to say, Now at the feast he would release for them one prisoner from whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. We don't have much time to to talk about Barabbas, but he was an evil, awful, wicked man. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. Around the time of Passover, he would release one prisoner to them, kind of to give a little, uh, maybe kickback to the the Jews in the Roman Empire, to uh, appease them. And he, said, he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. So Pilate begins to realize that Jesus is innocent. He realizes that he's being prosecuted right now because the chief priests are trying to, they're trying to get him. They're trying to trap him. And so he has this plan. Jesus or Barabbas. He's going to give the people an option. He's going to let them choose. Either let the innocent man go or the one who's committed these terrible acts. And in his mind, he probably thinks they'll pick Jesus. But we see that the chief priests in verse 11, it says that they stirred up the crowd to have uh, him release for them, Barabbas instead. And a pilot again said to them, almost giving them a second chance to let Jesus go, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released them, for them, Barabbas. So here we have Pilate knowing that Christ is innocent, but following, wishing to satisfy the crowd, wishing to make the people happy. He may have feared that they would revolt or riot against him or that it would somehow affect his political power. But whatever the the motivation, he hands Jesus over to be killed, to be crucified. And, and what strikes me here in this section of the scripture is how it seems like the bad guys are winning. Right? If this was your first time ever reading this story, if this was your first time ever reading the gospel of Mark and you were reading it all the way through, you would come to this point and be like, man, this Jesus guy seems powerless here. He's been doing all these miracles, but up into this point, it seems like he's losing now. It seems like the, the religious leaders have won. They've trapped Jesus. Their plan has worked. It's, it's going according to the wicked person's plan. I mean, look at verse 1. It says that the scribes, they bound to Jesus. They led him away, and they delivered him over to Pilate. They're the ones in the control. They're telling Jesus, the supposed son of God, what to do. Verse 11, it says that they're in the crowd, stirring up the crowd to have them pick Barabbas. And then we see the crowd. Blood hungry, ready for violence, they begin to shout out, crucify him, crucify him. And so as you read this, it seems like, it seems like the bad guys are winning. It seems like Jesus is helpless here. Like he has no control over what is happening. But what they don't realize in this story is that Jesus has never been more in control than he is right now. Jesus is the one that is in control of everything, and the divine plan of redemption is being written in this moment. It's being carried out according to the will of Jesus. Pilate, the chief priests, the bloodthirsty crowd, they're all playing their part in the story of redemption that God is writing in this moment. If you were to study Genesis 3 and you go back to Genesis 3, chapter, or Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, you'll see that there's this promise That Jesus is going to come and crush the head of the serpent, That one day Jesus was going to come and he was going to take down the enemy. That Satan was going to have no more power, that his head would be crushed, his work would be finished, and that Christ would reign. It's the first mention of the gospel in the Bible. And what we see here in this passage, even though it seems like the bad guys are winning, Christ is carrying out that plan. Christ is accomplishing the work of God in this moment. He is crushing the head of the serpent by being crucified, and he is in complete control. You can imagine maybe the feelings that the chief priests were having, maybe excited, maybe pumped up that they were getting their way, that the crowd had picked to crucify Jesus. But what they didn't know is they were playing into the hand of Jesus. They were accomplishing the work of the Lord Jesus says in John 10, 18, I don't have it on the screen for you. Jesus says this, no one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily. For I have authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again. For this is what my Father has commanded. Jesus says nobody takes my life. No man, no wicked person, no enemy of the Lord takes the life of the Son of God. But he lays it down. He lays it down for you, and he lays it down for me. And I have this on the screen. It's important for us to remember that even when evil seems like it's winning, we must remember that Jesus is sovereign and in control. As I look at some of the past events over the past couple of weeks in our our country, maybe you can think of things going on in your life. It can be hard. It can seem as though evil is winning. When it's just another day and you log on to Twitter or you turn on the news and you see a Christian school has been shot up, children dead, teachers dead, or you get the news of something personal in your life that has happened, family member has cancer, somebody else is sick, this is happening, and it can seem like evil is winning. But what Mark 15 and these first few verses remind us is that Christ is always in control. King Jesus cannot be overtaken. And if he's Lord of your life, he's king of your life, then though life is difficult, though evil is real, God is reigning. He's sovereign and he's in control. And the beautiful thing is that he's still writing his plan of redemption. You say, what do you mean? Redemption is finished once you and I are in heaven. So though we will suffer in this life, face evil in this life, see tragedy and wickedness in this life, we long for the day of our future redemption, that Christ has made possible through what He's done here in this chapter. So let's grab onto that truth and hold on to it, because sometimes that's all we have to grab onto. It's all we have to look forward to or to cling to when life feels hopeless. And the second thing I want us to see is number two, the humiliation of the divine. As we move on this, in this passage, we're going to begin to see that Jesus is mocked and, and tortured by these, these wicked men. And I, I think it's important for us to have in our minds that Jesus is not just a man. Jesus is not just one of us. He's the God-man. He's a hundred percent God and a hundred percent man. This is truly the Son of God. This is God in human flesh who stepped down from heaven. This is God who is about to be tortured, beat, humiliated. It's the Son of God. And the craziest thing is this happens by the hands of his own creation. As I've been thinking about this, I was thinking about my, my son, Jude, and uh, I know as he gets older, my wife and I are going to have to sit down and, and, and talk about our, our plans for him, talk about our rules in the house and, and what we want him to do, what we don't want him to do, to try to give him structure and protection in his life. And I was thinking, I know one day when he gets older, you teenagers know, he, he's going to disobey. He's going to look at the, the rules and the plan that we have for him, and he's going to completely disobey and there may be one day that he does something serious, something real, something that carries some weight to it. And I thought, man, how much that'll, that'll hurt my heart to know that he looked at our plan and our love for him and said, I don't want that. I want to do what I want to do. And then I compared that to what Christ is about to go through. What we're going to read, it doesn't even compare. Imagine being God, creating mankind and then having that creation torture you and abuse you, to treat you like a criminal. That's what we're going to read here in these next few verses. We see that as Pilate hands him over, uh, he hands him over to be, to be flogged. And we know that this process was, was brutal. They would use a tool that was much like a whip with many different braids of leather. And the leather would be infused with pieces of metal. So every time that Jesus was hit with this whip-like tool, his body would be bruised, his bones would be crushed. You just imagine the impact that every single hit would have. But not only that, the the leather was infused with sharp pieces of bone. So every time the, the whip would hit the back of Jesus, the bone would dig into his flesh and rip out chunks of his flesh. By the end of the time of Jesus' flogging, his skin would have been, like, hanging from his back. If you watch the passion of the Christ, it, it, it doesn't do it justice to likely what it would have looked like, what Jesus would have looked like after this. I saw a picture that was like a, a recreation of it, and you could see Jesus' ribs and his, the bones in his back showing. Because that's how brutally tortured he would have been. Hit over and over and over it said that many people would die in this process before they were ever crucified. They wouldn't be able to withstand this punishment. And then we see in the, the coming verses, it says the soldiers led him away inside the palace and they called together the whole battalion. This would have been around 600 soldiers, not just a couple men, but a whole battalion of soldiers. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put, him, put it on him. Purple would have been a color that really only uh, a royalty would have worn. So by putting on this purple cloak on Jesus, they're mocking him. Saying, you're the king, right? You're the the king of the Jews. And they, they twist together the crown of thorns and put that on his head again, mocking him, making fun of him. So you claim to be king. Let's treat you as king. Would have been great pain. Soldiers also humiliate him by saluting him. Hail, the king of the Jews, the king of the Jews. You picture 600 soldiers mocking him, the son of God. It says they were striking his head with a reed, the, the head that already had the crown of thorns. Every hit as they hit his head, the, the crown of thorns would drive into his skull further and further and further. It says in spitting on him, spitting in the face of God, can't imagine. This is they would kneel down and homage to him. They were mocking him, fake worshiping him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own claws on him and led him out to be crucified. Again, this is God being treated like he's less than human. As we continue to read as he's hanging on the cross, in verse 24, they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Again, the son of God being crucified between two criminals. Verse 29, and those who passed by, Derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. Come on down from the cross. As people walked by, making fun of him, mocking him, ridiculing him. Verse 31, So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, and he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross, that we may see him and believe as those who were crucified with him also reviled him. You see the humiliation that he endures, the the mocking from the crowd, the the scribes uh, tempting him. Come on down, if you're so powerful, why don't you save yourself? You say you can save other people, why don't you save yourself right now? It was R.C. Sproul who said, thank God that Jesus wasn't in the business of saving himself and that he stayed on the cross to save you and to save me but we see what Jesus has done and what he's gone through and for me this section of scripture reminds us of so many things It reminds us of the great love of Christ for you that he would endure all of these things it reminds us of his body that was broken on your behalf literally broken and Mark doesn't even go into all the details of what happens to his body the other Gospels do that. Mark, first and foremost, focuses on the humiliation of Jesus. The Son of God mocked by his own creation. This reminds us of the torment and the horror of the cross. I was reading one writer, and he said, we've domesticated the cross. Right? You, you, you walk into Walmart, and you see a little chocolate cross for sale, a little, little coloring book. And your kid can color the cross with a bunch of flowers and rainbows, But for Jesus' time, the cross was a picture of pure horror, torture, agony. That's what Christ went through. That's what Christ bore for us. All of this so that he might save us. Philippians 2, 5 through 8. I didn't know if I was going to read this or not, so it's not on the screen. It says this. It says, adopt, make it your own. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus Who existing in the form of God Did not consider equality with God As something to be exploited Meaning Jesus could have came down from heaven And ruled and reigned He could have been worshipped by everybody But instead he emptied himself By assuming the form of a servant Taking on the likeness of humanity And when he had come as a man He humbled himself by becoming obedient To the point of death Even to death on a cross This is the example of our Savior, that He died on a cross, that though He was God humbled Himself to the point of death on a cross. And as I look at myself and as I examine my heart, I see so much pride that Christ would suffer in this way and that I might think that I'm above serving in some different capacities that I might get it in my mind that people owe me something in this life. That God owes me a happy, healthy, wealthy life. This is the attitude of our savior. This is what he did for us. And Paul says to adopt that same attitude. What would win more people to Christ? An amazing Easter service where we pull out all the stops Or a room of people filled with this many people who adopted this attitude, what might change the world more? I think us living as Christ lived, having the mindset of Christ. It's powerful. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death. Praise Jesus for that. Last we'll see, number three, the crucifixion of the divine. Verse 33, when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land. And there's many writers, I'll stop right there. Many writers point out, almost all writers point out the significance of this. This kind of got me excited. If, If you were to look in Exodus... When God frees the Israelites from captivity, the the ninth plague is a period of three days of darkness. Three days of darkness falls over the Egyptian empire. And then following that, there's the the moment of Passover, where the firstborn of every Egyptian household is killed. And the Israelites are spared because of the blood spread on the, the doorpost. It's no coincidence that here in this passage... There is a period of darkness before the firstborn, the beloved son of God, is crucified. And when you look at Exodus, what's so beautiful for the Israelites is that because of this period of darkness and then the uh, the Egyptian firstborns being killed, they are freed from slavery. Freed from captivity. And what's beautiful for you and I is that there's this period of darkness, the Son of God is crucified, and then you and I, because of that happening, are freed from the slavery of sin. We're rescued because of what Christ has done. I thought that was a beautiful connection to the Old Testament. And Mark records only one phrase from Jesus. There's seven things that Jesus said on the cross, but Mark says only one of them. It says, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthonia, if I said that right. Which means this, these are the words of Jesus, our Savior, the Son of God on the cross. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus was experiencing the judgment of God poured out on him. He was experiencing the full wrath of God in this moment. You read in other Gospels and you see Jesus praying in the garden, praying so much that he's, he's blood sweating blood, going through this intense emotional agony. It's likely that what Jesus was asking the Lord, when he said, Lord, please take this cup from me, it was this moment that was likely on the mind of Jesus. Lord, take this cup from me. Because in this moment, Jesus was experiencing the wrath of God. He was experiencing a, a separation from the Lord that he had never experienced before. None of us can fully understand what Jesus felt in this moment when he was separated from the Father. It's not that we have a broken trinity, but that there is a separation here. Charles Spurgeon would say this. He says, this was the climax of Christ's grief. Not merely suffering, intense agony of the body, not only to be mocked by the priest and the people, but to be forsaken by his God. This was necessary as part of the penalty for sin. God must turn away from anyone who has sin. And since sin was laid on Christ, God turned his face away, even from his beloved son. There was a denser darkness over Jesus' spirit than over all the land. And out of the darkness came his cry of agony. He says, these were the bitterest words ever uttered by mortal lips. He says, it grieves me to think, listen to this, this is Spurgeon. It grieves me to think that my Savior should have ever had to say this when he hung on the cross, suffering, dying for me. Another pastor would say, wave after wave of the world's sin was poured over Jesus' sinless soul. Again and again during these three hours, his soul recoiled as the sins of the world were poured on his purity we can somewhat imagine the physical pain that Christ went through I hope you can't fully emphasize with it but the pain that he went through with the the separation between him and the father we cannot ever comprehend that we can never it's, it's unimaginable what Christ went through more so than the physical pain is what he faces here And if you skip down to verse 37, you see it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry. Likely, this is when he shouted out, It is finished. The work is done. And he breathed his last breath. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain in the temple, the, the veil in the temple was split significantly from top to bottom, showing that this was a work of God, the curtain represented a separation between mankind and the presence of God. You could not just go to the presence of the Lord. There was a separation. This curtain was so thick, it was almost like a wall. It's the holies of holies. Man could not just walk in there. But because of the death of Christ on the cross, man was no longer separated from God. For you and I, because Jesus died on the cross, God is now freely accessible to all people through the death and resurrection of Jesus. We have access to God. The veil is torn. We no longer have to go through priests. We have to go through religious rules and regulations. We have access to the Father, and the Spirit of God dwells within our hearts. We are now the temple of God. He now resides in us. It's the beauty of what Christ has done. I want to remind you, as we come to a close and we'll observe the Lord's Supper in a few moments, I want to remind you of three things, three things that we might dwell on this week as we prepare for Easter. Three things that hopefully will stir your heart for affection. Number one, it's not on the screen, but you can write it down. Number one is this, Christ is my substitute. Christ is my substitute. You must not forget that it was not Jesus' sin that nailed him to the cross, because Jesus was sinless. He was innocent. He was perfect. Jesus was nailed to the cross. Jesus was crucified. Jesus was mocked and humiliated because of your sin and my sin. Jesus was crucified because of the wickedness in our own hearts, because of the evil in our own hearts. In Romans, Paul tells us that the, the wages of sin is death, you realize because of our sin, we deserve to be punished. According to God's perfect law, that punishment for sin is death. But the good news is that Jesus was our substitute. Jesus took our place, our rightful place on the cross and Jesus died for us. I, uh, my wife makes fun of me for this. Uh, when, we were, when we were dating, uh, I took her to, so I played, I played homeschool basketball, uh, super competitive and, and all that, and I, I took her to this game, and it was they were gonna be giving out awards at the end of the game, and uh, selfishly, you know, I thought I was gonna at least make the all-star team, and I thought I was a shoe in for Defensive Player of the Year, I, I, I thought that. And so I invited her to the game thinking I'm gonna get awarded, and they're, they're calling names out, and it's like name after name after name, and they haven't mentioned my name yet, and I'm like, man, they must be saving me for last. Time comes and goes, I, I don't get the award. And in my, in my heart, I was, a little, I was a little upset because I was like, I deserve that. I was, I was the best defender. I deserve to be on the all-star team. What are you talking about? And don't we do that in life? We say, man, I deserve that position of status. I deserve that recognition. I deserve that, that raise or that promotion. But when it comes to the cross, when we see Christ on the cross, you know what we should say? I deserve that. That's my spot on that cross. But it's not because Christ was your substitute. We deserved punishment. We deserved death. But Christ took our place. Mm. So as you think of the cross remember that it should have been you but because of the mercy grace and love of God it was not the perfect for the wicked the innocent for the guilty the son of God for sons and daughters of rebellion number two remember that Christ is my atonement Christ is my atonement that same verse from Paul says the wages of sin is death and it shows us this truth it it carries this idea that there is a payment needed for sin that you and I are in debt because of our sin christ not only submitted himself and took our place and took our punishment but in that he was our atonement meaning that he satisfied the payment that was due for our sinfulness you and i were in debt But now if you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, you are no longer have a sin debt. You are no longer guilty. You are no longer bound to eternal punishment in hell because Christ paid your sin debt. Christ died in your place and atoned for your sins. It's what we would say is substitutionary atonement. Christ in my place taking my punishment so that my record is clean. So that if you are in Christ right now, when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He doesn't see your wickedness. He doesn't see your public and private sin. He doesn't see any of that. He sees the righteousness of Christ because your sin has been paid for. And what the enemy will try to do is to remind you of your sin. He'll, he'll call your phone and tell you that you have a sin debt. Remind you of all your wickedness, all your sin, all your wrongdoing, and all you have to say is Christ paid for it. It has been paid for because Christ took your place. He paid the price of sin. That's why we're gathered here. That's why we celebrate this. That's why the cross is so crazy to people. Because it's all about Christ, the Son of God, dying in our place. So that sin no longer defines us. Sin no longer has power over us. Like the Israelites, we are no longer a slave to sin because Christ died in our place and paid for our sin. And number three, what's the result? Christ reconciled me. Before the cross, we were separated from God. Now, because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, we can have a relationship with God. We were once enemies of God, now we are sons and daughters of God. That's the significance of the veil tearing in the temple. The finished work of Jesus on the cross means that we now have real access to God, access to him in personal ways. We have adoption as sons and daughters in Christ. He did not just save us and die for us, but he brought us into his family. And so now we get to worship and celebrate because of what he's done on the cross. Now we get to to go to church. We get to uh, commune with the other saints. We get to to worship. We get to observe the Lord's Supper. And we get to look forward to our future hope of eternity because Christ has reconciled me to the Father. Because I've been adopted into the family of God. And these are beautiful truths. Beautiful truths that should stir our heart and love and devotion towards our savior, especially this week. This should be a week where we try to daily think about what Christ has done for us, daily think about our sin so that when we walk in next Sunday, we don't walk in apathetic, lukewarm, numb. We walk in excited because we've thought deeply about our own sin deeply about the crucifixion of Jesus, and we're excited to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. Because of the resurrection, you and I now have life. Life abundantly, life eternal. And I would just say this, if you're in the room and you've never repented of your sins, you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, these life-giving truths are not applied to you if if you've never repented of your sins and placed your faith and trust in jesus christ the bible would say that you right now are spiritually dead that you're not a friend of god you're not a family member of god but you're an enemy of god right now like we all once were the bible would say and you you might say this is true too that you don't love god you don't worship god you don't live for god and the bible would say that because of your sin if you were to die today you would face eternal eternal punishment in hell. That's all of our story. That we were all enemies of the Lord. And if you've never repented in your sin, of your sin and, and, and believed in what Jesus has done on the cross, then you don't know Christ as Savior. You have no salvation. Your eternity is secured, but it's eternal punishment. But this is the good news. John 3, 16, you may know it. For God so loved the world that he gave up his only son, that's Jesus, that whoever believes in Jesus should not perish but have eternal life. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus or if you're realizing for the first time right now that you are not saved, you don't have to perish. You don't have to face punishment. You don't have to walk out of this room not knowing where you stand with God because Jesus died on the cross for you. Though you're an enemy of His, though you don't love Him, He loves you and desires to spend eternity with you. So if you would just repent of your sins and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord and that He died on the cross to save you, then you too can experience salvation. You too can be reconciled to the Father. And so if that's where you are today, I would invite you in a few moments to respond to the Lord, to cry out for salvation so that you might be saved, so that you might too be able to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus as a son or a daughter of God, because he loves you and he cares about you.